0: Well, good morning. This morning we want to talk about forbearance lifted out of Acts chapter 12. We're going to go through the whole chapter here, so uh, we'll be doing a lot of reading as well as making comments as we go along. In in Acts uh, chapter 11, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the New Testament Ecclesia was clarified. Also, the focus of Christian activity seemed to shift to Antioch. The apostles in Jerusalem received word of the work of the Lord in Antioch and sent Barnabas to help. Barnabas recognized that this was genuine work. This was really the Lord at work, and he traveled over to Tarsus and recruited Saul to come help. Saul, who had been on a hiatus for a while, uh, we don't know how long he had been on that hiatus, but he was uh, finally coming back to the action, and I'm sure he was very eager to engage with with Barnabas, and they taught together for about a year there in Antioch. Uh, All of these events are part of the unfolding meta-narrative of the redemption. Now, so far in the book of Acts, the New Testament Ecclesia struggle with three key questions about the revelation that Jesus was Lord in Christ. First, does the New Testament Ecclesia include Gentiles? That answer was given in chapter 10 and then explained in chapter 11. And the answer is God does not show bias against the Gentiles bias. God is inclusive of all people groups in his plan and purpose and in the the gospel of the kingdom of God. Of course, that's all in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse three, that God would bless all the nations of the earth through this. And the way he did that is he did it through providing redemption through the blood of Christ. The other two questions are, have not been answered yet. Uh, The second question will be answered in chapter 15. Do Christians have to be circumcised to be part of the New Testament Ecclesia? That answer will be no, they do not have to be. The third question is not clearly answered at the church council in Acts 15. It's do Christians have to obey the Mosaic law. There's some confusion on that, and it would be the Apostle Paul that would clarify that in his epistle to the Galatians. In Acts chapter 12, Herod, the king of Judea, not the Herod who, be, who actually crucified Christ. This is the Herod, his, his son. His son becomes the chief protagonist of the story. In this chapter, the apostle James was martyred. He was not the first martyr. Stephen was the first martyr. But James was the first apostle martyred. Herod recognized that the Jews were pleased because he martyred James. So he arrested Peter, intending to martyr him as well. But Peter's life was spared, at least momentarily, because there was a feast going on, and then that once the feast was over, it looked like Peter was going to get get crucified, or his head chopped off, as it, what happened with James. So that was that's a very interesting event, and that'll be a focus of a lot of our conversation today. Was navigating that situation with Peter. Now this chapter has a number of contrasts that are very interesting. For example, angels ministered to both life and death. Also, you have one apostle martyred and another apostle spared. You have Peter who actually is delivered supernaturally from prison, but yet he thought was in a trance. You have a prison door that opens supernaturally and a door to a church meeting that is inadvertently left closed. Now that's an interesting symbolic, you know, feature of this uh, chapter. And then you have fervent prayer offered and answered, but not believed and the Ecclesia flourishing in the midst of persecution. A very interesting contrast as you go through this. The chapter is presented in basically four movements. The first movement is James martyred and Peter arrested. The second movement is Peter rescued from prison. The third movement is Cornelius' pride that preceded his fall. And finally, the word flourishes. So let's take a look at this very interesting historical chapter and see what the Holy Spirit has to say to us today. So let me read verses one through five about the time that Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church and he executed James, John's brother with the sword. Presumably, I guess he beheaded him when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. So we're in the city of Jerusalem where there had been violent attacks on the Ecclesia, beginning with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7. The apostles James was executed James was not the first martyr, but the first apostle martyred, and Peter was next in line. But his execution was delayed because of this Jewish holiday. According to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, all the members of the Ecclesia in Jerusalem, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And somewhere between Acts 8 and Acts 12, some of these Christians apparently returned. And when Peter was in prison, they gathered to pray in the home of Mary, who was the mother of John Mark. Now, we presume John Mark was the writer of the synoptic gospel by his name. There were 16 men assigned to guard Peter. That's, that's very interesting. It sounds like total overkill. 16 men to guard one man. They apparently were divided into four squads of four men. Perhaps they were spooked. and Perhaps this was Herod who was spooked because he heard the stories about how the Christians had escaped jail before. You see that in Acts chapter 5. So apparently they wanted to be sure there's no escape from their clutches. So they were trying to be very sure that that Peter would remain in jail. He would not escape in some way. Now, scene two here is Peter rescued. In other words, Peter escapes. The very thing they're trying to stop actually will happen. So let's look at verses uh, 6 through 19. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that is Peter, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. When the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up. Now, this is really interesting. Now, do you think Peter might have known that he was probably spending his last night on earth? I suspect he probably did. And if you and I were, knew this was our last night, would we be sleeping? And would we be sleeping so soundly that if an angel showed up, he'd have to wake us up? Um, this is really interesting to me that, that Peter was able to do this. It suggests something about his spiritual condition that probably is far more superior than what we would be able to do. So striking Peter on the side, the angel woke him up and said, quick, get up. Now that word quick is not actually in the original text. In in fact, what it is, it's just a command, get up. But the command is in the imperative. So in English, we don't have an imperative mood. So the way we we issue a command is usually through inflection of our voice, or we add an extra word. So in this case, the translators added the word quick. But But the angel didn't say that word. He just commanded him to get up, uh, which is a great picture. You know, when the Lord gives you a directive, um, he's expecting you to respond. Uh, there's, There's time to do whatever God wants you to do, but there's not time to lollygag. There's not time to waste. You are to get up and do it. So he says, get up, and the chains fell off his wrist. Now, we don't know if the guards were actually you know, shackled to Peter. They may have been. But in any case, the shackles came off Peter's wrist. And Peter gets up. And then we have the command, get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. So apparently he did not have his normal clothes on. He had to get some kind of night clothes on. He had no sandals on. So get up and get dressed. And he did wrap your cloak around you. He told him and follow me. So the angels directing him every step of the way, get dressed, wrap your cloak around you, follow me. So they went out and, and, uh, Peter followed him and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening. You see, he was not clear. He thought he was seeing a vision. So after they passed the first and second guard, so they went past the, the, the cell gate, apparently Peter was maybe in a private cell and the cell door opened and then he goes past another apparently guard station, a second gate. And then they come to the iron gate that leads to the city. So there's probably the third gate and it opens by itself. This is an iron gate, a heavy iron gate. It just opens. So they go outside and pass, uh, pass one street and suddenly the angel left him. Now it would be perhaps if we were Peter, it would have been easy to think, well, this is all make believe. It's just a dream. It's a vision. This can't really be happening because how does that iron gate open this way? How does this angel show up like this? And when Peter came to himself, you know when you read that text it kind of reminds you of the prodigal. The prodigal son had to come to himself before he could be in reality with God. God is in reality. The question always is is will we join him in reality or will we live in our fairy tale worlds, our make-believe worlds, our our own dreams and imaginations? Well, Peter finally came to himself and then he said, "Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from, the, from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. You see, he knew he was going to die. The Jewish people expected him to die. And so here he is being rescued. It's so interesting that he uses the word know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me. That word certain there. Uh, we get a, it's a Greek word and a derivative of that word in English is authentic. It's authentic. It's real. It's true. So when you say something is authentic, it's real, it's true, you're saying there's no question about it. There's very few things in scripture of which it is said is certain. You know, you have to go back to Acts chapter two where you get the first first reference to something is certain in Acts 2.36, which is the conclusion of Peter's first message to the first Ecclesia on the first day of the birth of the Ecclesia to the first community who would make up the Ecclesia. He says, you can know, you Jewish people can know with certainty that the Father, God the Father, has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. This is the linchpin right here of the start of the New Testament Ecclesia. Jesus, who he is, he is Lord and Christ. Now sadly today, we are quick to recognize Jesus as Christ, identifying that as being our savior. But we are not quick to recognize Lordship. And one of the things that I see in working with students today is when I quiz them on this, the reason we're not quick at recognizing Jesus as Lord is because we want the power of choice. We want to think that we make our own decisions. We We decide what we want to do in life. If Jesus is Lord, then we don't have the power of choice. He makes the choices. Now, that's offensive to us. We think that's unfair. Everybody should have a choice. Well, we're in God's universe, and he is Lord, and he defines all reality. We don't have the right to redefine it. And we don't have the right to question him. In Romans 9, Paul makes it very clear when he's addressing this very point. He said, who are you to question God? We have no standing. The only way you can question God is you have to presume to be God. And that means you're an idol. You have made yourself an idol. You're worshiping yourself. So we have to be very clear that when the scripture says you can know for certain, it's certain. Jesus is Lord in Christ, that means he makes the choices. He is in charge. The other thing that in Acts chapter 10 that said we know for certain is that God is not biased. He's not ethnically biased, that every ethnicity has been included in the blessing of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And so now we have Peter becoming very clear, knowing for certain that God has rescued him. The only reason for Peter to be rescued is because God has a purpose for Peter. The only reason for God to heal someone is because God has a purpose in that healing. The only reason to to remove obstacles from our lives is because we have a purpose. The only reason to spare us from death is because there's a purpose in our continuing to live. So when you see this, we have the Lord signaling to us, that there's a reason for we live every day. Every day that we get up, we should be hitting the floor saying, your servant reports for duty. And no, there's breath in my body today. There's reason for my being. My only agenda today is to seek to do your will. That should be how we should go about living. And we should train others to live accordingly. Verse 12, as soon as Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary. The mother of John Mark. She's apparently part of the group that has, has come back to Jerusalem after the persecution began in Acts 8. After that persecution started, everybody left. You know, she's part of the group that came back. She's the mother of John Mark. And they had all assembled and they were praying. As I said in verse 5, they were praying fervently. Peter knocked at the outer the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. So they have a servant girl, apparently a little slave, which that's a whole other issue that we're not going to go into, but they had a slave. She recognized Peter's voice. And because of her joy, she's excited. She's thrilled. This is Peter. I recognize him. She's so excited. She forgets to open the door. She did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Now they're having a prayer meeting, praying for Peter. And she comes in and says, he's at the outer gate. And they said, you're out of your mind. That couldn't be. That can't be true. It's, it's got to be an angel. In other words, God could not have answered our prayer. That's called prayer and faith, isn't it? Yes, I'm being very sarcastic there. Uh, that's, that's many times how we pray. We pray not expecting God to do anything. We expe- pray expecting the answer to be no. Now we have to learn to pray in faith. Peter kept on knocking, he didn't give up. Can you just hear the background as Rhoda is saying, he's there, there's this knocking going on, they're denying it. And finally, they go out and open the door, they saw him, they were amazed, they're shocked. You know, we shouldn't be shocked that God answers prayer. You know what Jesus was shocked at? He was shocked to see anybody understand authority. Remember that story in Matthew 8? When he found the centurion that understood authority, he said, I haven't found anybody even in Israel that understands being under authority. I think that's very true today. We don't understand authority. We live as independent people. We want to to do what we want to do. We want to do our will. We don't want to submit to God, and so we don't submit to God's ways. Hopefully you can hear this. This isn't a disease that infects all of us. It's called humanism. We profess to be Christians, but we live as humanists. Humanists are orphans. We disconnect from the Father, and we disconnect, that's the Heavenly Father, we disconnect also from our earthly fathers, our spiritual fathers, and we do what we want to do. We want to make the choices. This is so ingrained in us, it's so hard to break this, but we must fight this and surrender to true divine authority. God the Father the Lord Jesus Christ and his agents that God has placed in our lives to help us align with him. Peter then goes on motioning to them and with his hand to be silent. And I think that is so interesting. Peterson is supernaturally rescued. It's a divine miracle. And yet he's getting in the house and they're making a commotion. And he's saying, quiet down. You see, when God does something on your life, don't take it for granted. Don't presume that gives you a license to be sloppy. You know, you know there's risk all around you. Protect your deliverance. Do the right things. So be quiet. Let's don't push this thing. Let's re- be responsible. God has delivered me. I want to explain to you what happened, and then I'm out of here. So he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison, telling these things to James, which is, who was apparently the brother of the Lord who we think wrote the book of James because remember James the Apostle had been martyred so this was another James and the brothers and he said and he left he went to them to another place so we don't know where he went but he clearly felt he was not safe there and so he went someplace where he could be safe he was going to protect his deliverance at daylight there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what happened would become of Peter after Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. This was a very common practice that if the Roman guards failed to properly guard the prisons, prisoner, i.e., the prisoner escaped, then they would it, they would basically execute on the guards the the sentence that had been had been assigned to the prisoner. So Peter was assigned to die. And when the guards let you know, did not responsibly hold him, then they suffered his fate. So that was a Roman practice. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So this all happened in Jerusalem and Judea area. And now you're going to travel to the coast, to Caesarea, which is outside of Judea. And now the next scene will be there. So let's take a, take a look at scene, scene three. This is pride precedes a fall. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him, and after winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, so Herod went down to this area that was rebelling against him and giving him a hard time. They realized it's not smart to oppose the king. We need to make peace. They're looking for some leverage point, So they find Blastus, who is in charge of the king's bedroom. They use him to make peace with the king. And so now king, the king is going to address the people. So there's a day appointed, and here comes Herod, dressed in his royal robe, seated on the throne. He's delivering his speech to the people. Now, the people are probably in a very people-pleasing mode right now. They wanna keep the king happy. So they begin to shout, it's the voice of a god and not a man. Now, they, most of the people there were part of the Roman culture, the Roman Empire. They probably had a Roman worldview, which was a polytheistic worldview. And so the gods in the Roman Empire were just superhumans. They weren't really a deity like they are in Christianity or Judaism. They were just kind of superhumans, people with, with more, more authority, more power than most people have. So that's what they're attri- attributing this deity status to Herod. Now what's int- what, what is fascinating to hear is how God responds to this. You see, all of us exist at the pleasure of God. We're all sinners by nature. There's absolutely no reason we should survive even birth. We have God has every right to execute judgment on us because we are not holy people. He is a holy God, and anything that's not holy cannot stand in his presence. But we see that God has chosen to express his love toward us by sending mercy, and that mercy is forbearing judgment, not eliminating judgment, but forbearing judgment for a future day and then given us common grace to be able to survive in a fallen state in this world. If we didn't have those benefits, none of us would be alive today. No one would get past the womb. We'd all be killed at the womb. In fact, Adam and Eve wouldn't have reproduced. We wouldn't exist. So God's, God's forbearance is a big part of reality. God has the freedom in forbearance to lift it any time. He is not obligated to extend forbearance. That is a choice he makes. It's his sovereign pleasure to extend it. And so here he chooses to withdraw his forbearance because what you see is a king receiving the accolades of the people and not correctly you know, advising them, it's I am not a god. You need to glorify the God of heaven. You see, even though he was a pagan under a pagan worldview, he's accountable to Christ and to a Christian worldview. You can't, you can't use false worldviews as a, as a pass to get you out of accountability to the true God of the universe. And so in this case, forbearance is lifted and, and an angel struck him. Now, it's interesting. You might say, well, how would an angel strike him? Well, why didn't he just all of a sudden fall down like they did in the case of, of Ananias and Sapphira? They just fell down. They were dead immediately. They were dead before they hit the ground. There was like like what there was seemed to be no human agent. It was just an angel striking them dead. But here, the angel uses an agent. The agent is a worm. And we don't know how long this worm you know, ate on here. Was it a day, a minute, an hour, a, a you know, a week? We don't know any of that, but we just know that the angel struck him down using a a physical instrument of a worm. God can do that at His sovereign pleasure. All right, so let's go to scene four. This is the final scene of the chapter, and there the word of God flourishes. So what we have now, you look back on what you've read so far. You know, there's not much. That gives you hope that the word of God is going to flourish. I mean, even Peter's kind of hiding and wanting everyone to be quiet. Don't, we can't give away that we're here. If they find us, they're probably gonna, you know, arrest us and we're gonna be, you know, sacrificed and martyred. So they're not they're not out there boastfully declaring a message of any sort. Yet the word of God flourished and multiplied. Now, the word flourish there is a very interesting word. It's the word oxiano. It's, it's in the active mood, the active voice, indicative mood. The active voice means that the word of God is the active party. It's the power that's causing the flourishing. The indicative mood means it's a fact. It's also the imperfect tense, which means it's a continuous, uncompleted process. You see, this flourishing is going on and on and on and on, it's the word of God that's driving it. It's not a human being. The anointing is not with the human. It's with the message, the logos, the word of God. It's flourishing. And then it says it multiplied. The word multiplied there happens to be in the passive voice, meaning the multiplication is the, the fruit, the product of the flourishing. So the cause of the of the flourishing is the word of God, and the multiplication is the evidence of the flourishing. So when God does something, there'll be multiplication, there'll be growth. The sign of a true work of God will be growth, quality and or quantity. And I'm gonna suggest if you look at the life of Jesus, which does he measure which is which is more valuable to him, quality or quantity? I think it's very clear. Jesus was interested in going deep rather than broad. He, he certainly saw the masses, he touched the masses, he, but he did not spend a lot of time with the masses. He spent his time largely with the disciples, taking them deep. Quality trumped quantity. That seems to be a pattern. And certainly as you look at the principle of the remnant throughout Scripture, that is indeed the case. God was always looking for people who had hearts after him deep, profound commitment to him who would die to serve his purpose. So this is what the word of God does. The word of God produces true quality in people and some level of quantity. After they had completed their relief mission, and that word there for relief mission is diakonia, the the word that we normally translate ministry. And you can see in this case, that ministry was not, had nothing to do with teaching the Word. It had to do with providing supplies to people that were suffering in a famine. So that can be ministry, just like teaching the Word can be ministry, which Acts 6 tells us that. So this idea for ministry is really largely distorted today. Ministry means executing the commands of Christ. Wherever you're obeying and aligning with God, that is your ministry. You're executing the commands of Christ. Even if it's physical work or spiritual work, it doesn't matter. Both are assigned by different ones in different settings by God to serve his purpose. So Paul and Barnabas had a ministry a Diakonia to provide famine relief. That's what you see at the end of chapter 11. And now they're finishing that. And then they go back to Jerusalem, and that's when they take John Mark with him and of course this trio would then be the core of the first apostolic work that would be launched in the next chapter so let me just do some uh, comments here about uh, the theology of forbearance and then I want to give you an application is divine forbearance being lifted in the USA so forbearance the original sin of Adam and Eve is recorded in Genesis 3 the consequence was death Spiritually, they were immediately separated from God in a state of orphanity, but physical death was deferred. This was an act of mercy expressed through divine forbearance. Accordingly, their heirs, which is we are their heirs, all humanity have come from Adam and Eve, are born in a state of spiritual orphanity, and deferred physical death. That is the state of every human being. Sadly, many in the professing Christian world have not escaped either one of those. If they're still spiritually orphans and they're they're they've not died yet, and of course physical death is uh, the the end for all of us, except those maybe like Enoch and Elijah and those re- alive at the return of Christ. That will come as well, and then there will be a second death after that, and that's when the complete and final separation from God will be executed for all except those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now another expression. Of God's mercy is his restraint of sin not only does he forbear physical death but he also in the process of us living before physically dying he restrains our sin to a level this enables mankind to survive in a fallen state and enjoy the benefits of common grace which is the limited ability to obey God on a rudimentary level but not salvifically this means that mankind is not utterly depraved, which is as evil as possible, but mankind is totally depraved, impotent to do enough good works to meet God's righteous standards. God sovereignly extends and lifts the mercy of forbearance at his sovereign pleasure. Infants die and some people display utterly sinful acts, such as mass shootings. These are reminders of God's forbearance. that is commonly extended to humans at God's pleasure. The Apostle Paul stated this truth in the following words from Romans 9, verse 18. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. God works at his sovereign pleasure. An example of God withdrawing his mercy is found in the story of King Herod here in Acts chapter 12, who enjoyed God's forbearance for 54 years, at least that we believe that's about his age. And then God lifted his forbearance, When Herod presumed to receive glory that belongs only to God, that was God's sovereign pleasure. Every day God could lift, or any day God could lift his forbearance in our lives. And we have to be very aware of that. Forbearance and final judgment and the restraint of sin are wonderful expressions of the love of God revealed through divine mercy and expressed through forbearance extending to fallen extended to fallen mankind. But God has no obligation to express his love this way. He sovereignly chooses when to extend mercy and for how long. And he can withdraw the mercy of forbearance at his pleasure. This should keep us humble and thankful before him each day. Now word of application here is divine forbearance being lifted in the USA. In the latter part of the 20th century, the Chinese government conducted a 20 year research project, seeking to understand why the USA was the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth. Their conclusion was clear. The USA was the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth because of its Christian heritage. The Chinese vowed to upend the USA by embracing Christian values, but denying Christ. This continues to today. This experiment is tenuous, and it may fail. In fact, I believe it will fail, but they don't know that yet. Nevertheless, the Chinese are trying to do this to upend the US, and the United States is helping them. Well, how are we helping them? Well, just consider some things that are going on and have gone on for some time. Since World War II, the United States has lost every major war, Korea, Vietnam, and now Afghanistan. The latter was the longest war in, in the 20 years since the, the attack on the U.S. soil by the Taliban on September 11, of 2001. A major strategic battle in the war on terror against Islamic extremists, extremists was conducted in Afghanistan. In August of 2021, the USA exited Afghanistan, asserting that their mission was over, that the Afghanistan military was trained and equipped to manage the Taliban. This assumption proved to be false. Before the USA could withdraw its military, the president of Afghanistan fled the country, and the Taliban took over. This happened before we even completely left. The Taliban viewed this as a victory over the USA, and will undoubtedly embolden them to resume their attack on the u.s with the open border policy of the current u.s government the opportunity for the taliban to attack on u.s soil is easier than ever though no major terrorist attacks have occurred in the u.s over the past 20 years this could change quickly could this heightened level of risk be a sign of divine forbearance being lifted Since the fall of mankind, God's forbearance has mercifully delayed the ultimate judgment on mankind for the sin of humanity. God's forbearance also includes the restraint of sin so that mankind is not utterly depraved, that is, as bad as possible. Instead, mankind is totally depraved, meaning that mankind can never do enough good works to merit righteous standing before God. But mankind can, through common grace, obey some of God's commandments on a rudimentary level and survive. That's all we can do is survive. That's the only way we can survive in a universe governed by a sovereign, holy God. Notwithstanding the mercy of God through divine forbearance in executing the final judgment and the restraint of sin, God can sovereignly lift his forbearance at any time at his sovereign pleasure. An example of this is King Herod Agrippa, who was king of Judah from 41 to 44 AD and who was venerated by his people as speaking as one who had the voice of a God, not man. Though the people were attributing deity to the king in the sense of the Roman worldview, Herod was still accountable to the one true God, to the Christian worldview, who at at his pleasure lifted his forbearance and executed judgment. Herod was eaten by worms and died. Note that the people who praised him did not die, at least not that day. Only Herod died because he did not humble himself and give glory to God. In time, all the people died as well. Could God be lifting his forbearance on the US today? The country that the Chinese discovered was the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth because of its Christian heritage is struggling now as perhaps never before in its history. But the people of the US presumed the right to disconnect from their heritage rooted in the authority of scripture. Instead, said the people of the U.S. are abandoning a Christian worldview and embracing atheism. Like Herod, embracing a wrong worldview, does, this does not exempt the U.S. from divine accountability. Consequently, the U.S. seems ripe to lose its status as the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth and possibly for divine forbearance to be lifted. The terrorist attacks by the Taliban facilitated by the open war policy of the U.S. might seem probable. In other words, we could see terrorists coming into this country in unprecedented numbers fairly quickly. And the continuation of our internal social meltdown, where we're rejecting our Christian heritage, seems to be uninvaded. The two factors, these two factors, that is the threat of external terrorism coming in and our internal meltdown from the rejection of our Christian norms, these two factors can reduce the U.S. to a third world status. Excuse me, and we could become a, a, a country that is, is in bondage and full of poverty at a level we've never seen before. According to the Apostle John, the spirit of Antichrist denies God and his son Jesus. And there are many Antichrists who've already come into the world. We see this in 1 John 2, and, and then in chapter 4, and then Second John 1. Behind every act is a person, and behind every person is a spirit. Those who know the Lord have the Holy Spirit that is the Lord Jesus within them. And those who don't know the Lord have the spirit of Antichrist in them. The spirit of Antichrist appears to be the driving force behind the Taliban, and appears to be the driving force behind the cultural rejection of Christianity by the people of the U.S., and is perhaps even the driving force behind the current U.S. government. If this is true, the spirit of Antichrist is in control as perhaps never before in history and could work synergistically with the Taliban, the people of the U.S. and the U.S. government synergistically agreeing to bondage and spiritual death and and economic calamity. This could produce unmitigated carnage and economic upheaval in the U.S. This could be an example of the removal of divine forbearance. If God's forbearance in the restraint of evil is lifted, divine judgment on the U.S. will become evident to all. So he who has an ear to hear, may he hear whatever it is the Holy Spirit is saying to us today through this lesson here in Acts chapter 12. In Jesus' name. Amen.